0: Chapter 26, Part 5 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter 26, Progress of the Huns. Part 5 Whatever may have been just the measure of the calamities of Europe, there was reason to fear that the same calamities would soon extend to the peaceful countries of Asia. The sons of the Goths had been judiciously distributed through the cities of the East, and the arts of education were employed to polish and subdue the native fierceness of their temper. In the space of about twelve years, their numbers had continually increased, and the children, who, in the first emigration, were sent over the Hellespont, had attained, with rapid growth, the strength and spirit of perfect manhood. It was impossible to conceal from their knowledge the events of the Gothic War, and, as those daring youths had not studied the language of dissimulation, they betrayed their wish, their desire, perhaps their intention, to emulate the glorious example of their fathers. The danger of the time seemed to justify the jealous suspicion of the provincials, And these suspicions were admitted as unquestionable evidence that the Goths of Asia had formed a secret and dangerous conspiracy against the public safety. The death of Valens had left the East without a sovereign, and Julius, who filled the important station of Master General of the troops with a high reputation of diligence and ability, thought it his duty to consult the Senate of Constantinople, which he considered, during the vacancy of the throne, as the representative council of the nation. As soon as he had obtained the discretionary power of acting as he should judge most expedient for the good of the republic, he assembled the principal officers, and privately concerted effectual measures for the execution of his bloody design. An order was immediately promulgated, that, on a stated day, the Gothic youth should assemble in the capital cities of their respective provinces, And, as the report was industrially circulated, that they were summoned to receive a liberal gift of lands and money, the pleasing hope allayed the fury of their resentment, and, perhaps, suspended the motions of the conspiracy. On the appointed day, the unarmed crowd of the Gothic youth was carefully collected in the square or forum. The streets and avenues were occupied by the Roman troops, and the roofs of the houses were covered with archers and slingers. At the same hour, in all the cities of the East, the signal was given of indiscriminate slaughter, and the provinces of Asia were delivered by the cruel prudence of Julius from a domestic enemy, who, in a few months, might have carried fire and sword from the Hellespont to the Euphrates. The urgent consideration of the public safety may undoubtedly authorise the violation of every positive law. How far that, or any other consideration, May operate to dissolve the natural obligations of humanity and justice is a doctrine of which I still desire to remain ignorant. The Emperor Gratian was far advanced on his march towards the plains of Hadrianopol, when he was informed, at first by the confused voice of fame, and afterwards by the more accurate reports of Victor and Richemere, that his impatient colleague had been slain in battle and that two-thirds of the Roman army were exterminated by the sword of the victorious Goths. Whatever resentment the rash and jealous vanity of his uncle might deserve, the resentment of a generous mind is easily subdued by the softer emotions of grief and compassion, and even the sense of pity was soon lost in the serious and alarming consideration of the state of the Republic. Gratian was too late to assist— "'he was too weak to revenge his unfortunate colleague. "'And the valiant and modest youth felt himself unequal to the support of a sinking world. "'A formidable tempest of the barbarians of Germany seemed ready to burst over the provinces of Gaul, "'and the mind of Gratian was oppressed and distracted by the administration of the Western Empire. "'In this important crisis, the government of the East and the conduct of the Gothic War— "'required the undivided attention of a hero and a statesman. "'A subject invested with such ample command "'would not long have preserved his fidelity to a distant benefactor, "'and the Imperial Council embraced the wise and manly resolution "'of conferring an obligation rather than of yielding to an insult. "'It was the wish of Gratian to bestow the purple as the reward of virtue. "'But at the age of nineteen... It is not easy for a prince educated in the supreme rank to understand the true characters of his ministers and generals. He attempted to weigh, with an impartial hand, their various merits and defects, and, whilst he checked the rash confidence of ambition, he distrusted the cautious wisdom which despaired of the republic. As each moment of delay diminished something of the power and resources of the future sovereign of the East, THE SITUATION OF THE TIMES WOULD NOT ALLOW A TEDIOUS DEBATE. THE CHOICE OF GRATIAN WAS SOON DECLARED IN FAVOR OF AN EXILE, WHOSE FATHER, ONLY THREE YEARS BEFORE, HAD SUFFERED, UNDER THE SANCTION OF HIS AUTHORITY, AN UNJUST AND IGNOMINIOUS DEATH. THE GREAT THEODOSIUS, A NAME CELEBRATED IN HISTORY AND DEAR TO THE CATHOLIC CHURCH, WAS SUMMONED TO THE IMPERIAL COURT which had gradually retreated from the confines of Thrace to the more secure station of Sirmium. Five months after the death of Valens, the Emperor Gratian produced before the assembled troops his colleague and their master, who, after a modest, perhaps a sincere resistance, was compelled to accept, amidst the general acclamations, the diadem, the purple, and the equal title of Augustus, The provinces of Thrace, Asia, and Egypt, over which Valens had reigned, were resigned to the administration of the new emperor. But, as he was specially entrusted with the conduct of the Gothic war, the Illyrian prefecture was dismembered, and the two great dioceses of Dacia and Macedonia were added to the dominions of the Eastern Empire. The same province, and perhaps the same city, which had given to the throne the virtues of Trajan and the talents of Hadrian, was the original seat of another family of Spaniards, who, in a less fortunate age, possessed near fourscore years the declining empire of Rome. They emerged from the obscurity of municipal honours by the active spirit of the elder Theodosius, a general whose exploits in Britain and Africa have formed one of the most splendid parts of the annals of Valentinian, THE SON OF THAT GENERAL, WHO likewise BORE THE NAME OF THEODOSIUS, WAS EDUCATED BY SKILFUL PERCEPTORS IN THE LIBERAL STUDIES OF YOUTH, BUT HE WAS INSTRUCTED IN THE ART OF WAR BY THE TENDER CARE AND SEVERE DISCIPLINE OF HIS FATHER. UNDER THE STANDARD OF SUCH A LEADER, YOUNG THEODOSIUS SOUGHT GLORY AND KNOWLEDGE IN THE MOST DISTANT SCENES OF MILITARY ACTION, INURED HIS CONSTITUTION TO THE DIFFERENCE OF SEASONS AND CLIMATES. DISTINGUISHED HIS VALOUR BY SEA AND LAND, AND OBSERVED THE VARIOUS WARFARE OF THE SCOTS, THE SAXONS, AND THE MOORS. HIS OWN MERIT, AND THE RECOMMENDATION OF THE CONQUEROR OF AFRICA, SOON RAISED HIM TO A SEPARATE COMMAND, AND, IN THE STATION OF THE DUKE OF MACEA, HE VANQUISHED AN ARMY OF SUMMATIONS, SAVED THE PROVINCE, DESERVED THE LOVE OF THE SOLDIERS, AND PROVOKED THE ENVY OF THE COURT. His rising fortunes were soon blasted by the disgrace and execution of his illustrious father, and Theodosius obtained, as a favor, the permission of retiring to a private life in his native province of Spain. He displayed a firm and temperate character in the ease with which he adapted himself to this new situation. His time was almost equally divided between the town and country, the spirit, which had animated his public conduct, was shown in the active and affectionate performance of every social duty, and the diligence of the soldier was profitably converted to the improvement of his ample patrimony, which lay between Valladolid and Segovia, in the midst of a fruitful district, still famous for a more exquisite breed of sheep. From the innocent but humble labours of his farm, Theodosius was transported, in less than four months, to the throne of the Eastern Empire. And the whole period of the history of the world will not perhaps afford a similar example of an elevation at the same time so pure and so honourable. The princes, who peaceably inherit the sceptre of their fathers, claim and enjoy a legal right, the more secure as it is absolutely distinct from the merits of their personal characters. The subjects, who in a monarchy... Or a popular state acquire the possession of supreme power, may have raised themselves, by the superiority either of genius or virtue, above the heads of their equals. But their virtue is seldom exempt from ambition, and the cause of the successful candidate is frequently stained by the guilt of conspiracy or civil war. Even in those governments which allow the reigning monarch to declare a colleague or a successor his partial choice, which may be influenced by the blindest passions, is often directed to an unworthy object. But the most suspicious malignity cannot ascribe to Theodosius, in his obscure solitude of calca, the arts, the desires, or even the hopes of an ambitious statesman. And the name of the exile would long since have been forgotten, if his genuine and distinguished virtues had not left a deep impression in the imperial court, During the season of prosperity he had been neglected, but, in the public distress, his superior merit was universally felt and acknowledged. What confidence must have been reposed in his integrity, since Gratian could trust that a pious son would forgive, for the sake of the Republic, the murder of his father? What expectations must have been formed of his abilities to encourage the hope that a single man could save and restore the empire of the East. Theodosius was invested with the purple, in the thirty-third year of his age. The vulgar gazed with admiration on the manly beauty of his face, and the graceful majesty of his person, which they were pleased to compare with the pictures and medals of the Emperor Trajan. Whilst intelligent observers discovered, in the qualities of his heart and understanding, a more important resemblance to the best and greatest of the Roman princes. It is not, without the most sincere regret, that I must now take leave of an accurate and faithful guide, who has composed the history of his own times, without indulging the prejudices and passions, which usually affect the mind of a contemporary, Armanius Marcellenius, who terminates his useful work with the defeat and death of Valens, recommends the more glorious subject of the ensuing reign to a youthful vigour and eloquence of the rising generation. The rising generation was not disposed to accept his advice, or to imitate his example, and, in the study of the reign of Theodosius, we are reduced to illustrate the partial narrative of Zosimus, by the obscure hints of fragments and chronicles, by the figurative style of poetry or panegyric, and by the precarious assistance of the ecclesiastical writers, who, in the heat of religious faction, are apt to despise the profane virtues of sincerity and moderation. Conscious of these disadvantages, which will continue to involve a considerable portion of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, I shall proceed with doubtful and timorous steps. Yet I may boldly pronounce that the battle of Hadrianople was never revenged by any signal or decisive victory of Theodosius over the barbarians, and the expressive silence of his venial orators may be confirmed by the observation of the condition and circumstances of the times. The fabric of a mighty state, which had been reared by the labours of successive ages, could not be overturned by the misfortune of a single day, if the fatal power of the imagination did not exaggerate the real measure of the calamity. The loss of 40,000 Romans, who fell in the plains of hadrianople might have soon been recruited in the populous provinces of the east, which contained so many millions of inhabitants. The courage of a soldier is found to be the cheapest, and most common, quality of human nature, and sufficient skill to encounter an undisciplined force, "'might have been speedily taught by the care of the surviving centurions. "'If the barbarians were mounted on the horses, "'and equipped with the armour of their vanquished enemies, "'the numerous studs of Cappadocia and Spain "'would have supplied new squadrons of cavalry. "'The thirty-four arsenals of the empire were plentifully stored "'with magazines of offensive and defensive arms, "'and the wealth of Asia might still have yielded an ample fund "'for the expenses of war.' but the effects which were produced by the Battle of Hadrianople on the minds of the barbarians and of the Romans extended the victory of the former and the defeat of the latter far beyond the limits of a single day. A Gothic chief was heard to declare, with insolent moderation, that for his own part he was fatigued with slaughter, but that he was astonished how a people, who fled before him like a flock of sheep, could still presume to dispute the possession of their treasures and provinces. The same terrors which the name of the Huns had spread among the Gothic tribes were inspired by the formidable name of the Goths among the subjects and soldiers of the Roman Empire. If Theodosius, hastily collecting his scattered forces, had led them into the field to encounter a victorious enemy, his army would have been vanquished by their own fears and his rashness could not have been excused by the chance of success. But the great Theodosius, an epithet which he honourably deserved on this momentous occasion, conducted himself as the firm and faithful guardian of the Republic. He fixed his headquarters at Thessaloniki, the capital of the Macedonian diocese. From whence he could watch the irregular motions of the barbarians, and direct the operations of his lieutenants, from the gates of Constantinople, to the shores of the Hadriatic. The fortifications and garrisons of the city were strengthened, and the troops, among whom a sense of order and discipline was revived, were insensibly emboldened by the confidence of their own safety. From these secure stations, they were encouraged to make frequent sallies on the barbarians, who infested the adjacent country, and, as they were seldom allowed to engage, without some decisive superiority, either of ground or of numbers, their enterprises were, for the most part, successful, and they were soon convinced, by their own experience, of the possibility of vanquishing their invincible enemies. The detachments of these separate garrisons were generally united into small armies. The same cautious measures were pursued according to an extensive and well-concerted plan of operations, the events of each day added strength and spirit to the Roman arms, and the artful diligence of the Emperor, who circulated the most favourable reports of the success of the war, contributed to subdue the pride of the barbarians, and animate the hopes and courage of his subjects. If, instead of this faint and imperfect outline, we could accurately represent the counsels and actions of Theodosius in four successive campaigns. There is reason to believe that his consummate skill would deserve the applause of every military reader. The Republic had formerly been saved by the delays of Fabius, and while the splendid trophies of Scipio and the field of Zama attract the eyes of posterity, the camps and marches of the dictator among the hills of Campania may claim a juster proportion of the solid and independent fame which the general is not compelled to share either with fortune or with his troops such was likewise the merit of theodosius and the infirmities of his body which most unseasonably languished under a long and dangerous disease could not oppress the vigour of his mind or divert his attention from the public service The deliverance and peace of the Roman provinces was the work of prudence rather than of valor. The prudence of Theodosius was seconded by fortune, and the emperor never failed to seize and to improve every favorable circumstance. As long as the superior genius of Fritigern preserved the union and directed the motions of the barbarians, their power was not inadequate to the conquest of a great empire. The death of that hero, the predecessor and master of the renowned Alaric, relieved an impatient multitude from the intolerable yoke of discipline and discretion. The barbarians, who had been restrained by his authority, abandoned themselves to the dictates of their passions, and their passions were seldom uniform or consistent. An army of conquerors was broken into many disorderly bands of savage robbers, And their blind and irregular fury was no less pernicious to themselves than to their enemies. Their mischievous disposition was shown in the destruction of every object which they wanted strength to remove, or taste to enjoy, and they often consumed with improvident rage the harvests or the granaries, which soon afterwards became necessary for their own subsistence. A spirit of discord arose among the independent tribes and nations, which had been united only by the bands of a loose and voluntary alliance. The troops of the Huns and the Alani would naturally abrade the flight of the Goths, who were not disposed to use, with moderation, the advantages of their fortune. The ancient jealousy of the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths could not be long suspended." And the haughty chiefs still remembered the insults and injuries which they had reciprocally offered or sustained while the nation was seated in the countries beyond the Danube. The progress of domestic faction abated the more diffuse sentiment of national animosity, and the officers of Theodosius were instructed to purchase, with liberal gifts and promises, the retreat or service of the discontented party. THE ACQUISITION OF MODAR, PRINCE OF THE ROYAL BLOOD OF THE AMALI, GAVE A BOLD AND FAITHFUL COMPANION TO THE CAUSE OF ROME. THE ILLUSTRIOUS DESERTER SOON OBTAINED THE RANK OF MASTER-GENERAL, WITH AN IMPORTANT COMMAND, SURPRISED AN ARMY OF HIS COUNTRYMEN, WHO WERE IMMERSED IN WINE AND SLEEP, AND, AFTER A CRUEL SLAUGHTER OF THE ASTONISHED GOTHS, RETURNED WITH AN IMMENSE SPOIL AND FOUR THOUSAND WAGONS TO THE IMPERIAL CAMP. IN THE HANDS OF A SKILFUL POLITICIAN, THE MOST DIFFERENT MEANS MAY BE SUCCESSFULLY APPLIED TO THE SAME ENDS. AND THE PEACE OF THE EMPIRE, WHICH HAD BEEN FORWARDED BY THE DIVISIONS, WAS ACCOMPLISHED BY THE REUNION OF THE GOTHIC NATION. ALTHANARIC, WHO HAD BEEN A PATIENT SPECTATOR OF THESE EXTRAORDINARY EVENTS, WAS AT LENGTH DRIVEN, BY THE CHANCE OF ARMS, FROM THE DARK RECESSES OF THE WOODS OF Carcoland. HE NO LONGER HESITATED TO PASS THE DANUBE, AND A VERY CONSIDERABLE PART OF THE SUBJECTS OF frittigan WHO ALREADY FELT THE INCONVENIENCES OF ANARCHY, WERE EASILY PERSUADED TO ACKNOWLEDGE FOR THEIR KING A GOTHIC JUDGE, WHOSE BIRTH THEY RESPECTED, AND WHOSE ABILITIES THEY HAD FREQUENTLY EXPERIENCED. BUT AGE HAD CHILLED THE DARING SPIRIT OF Athanaric, AND INSTEAD OF LEADING HIS PEOPLE TO THE FIELD OF BATTLE AND VICTORY he wisely listened to the fair proposal of an honourable and advantageous treaty. Theodosius, who was acquainted with the merit and power of his new ally, condescended to meet him at a distance of several miles from Constantinople, and entertained him in the imperial city, with the confidence of a friend and the magnificence of a monarch. The barbarian prince observed, with curious attention, the variety of objects which attracted his notice, and at last broke out into a sincere and passionate explanation of wonder. "'I now behold,' said he, "'what I never could believe, "'the glories of this stupendous capital.' And as he cast his eyes around, he viewed and he admired the commanding situation of the city, the strength and beauty of the walls and public edifices, "'the capacious harbour, crowded with innumerable vessels, "'the perpetual concourse of distant nations, "'and the arms and discipline of the troops. "'Indeed,' continued Athanaric, "'the emperor of the Romans is a god upon earth, "'and the presumptuous man, who dares to lift his hand against him, "'is guilty of his own blood.' "'The Gothic king did not long enjoy this splendid and honourable reception.' and, as temperance was not the virtue of his nation, it may justly be suspected that his mortal disease was contracted amidst the pleasures of the imperial banquets. But the policy of Theodosius deserved more solid benefit from the death than he could have expected from the most faithful services of his ally. The funeral of Athanaric was performed with solemn rites in the capital of the East, A STATELY MONUMENT WAS ERECTED TO HIS MEMORY, AND HIS WHOLE ARMY, WON BY THE LIBERAL COURTESY AND DECENT GRIEF OF THEODOSIUS, ENLISTED UNDER THE STANDARD OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE. THE SUBMISSION OF SO GREAT A BODY OF THE Visigoths WAS PRODUCTIVE OF THE MOST SALUTARY CONSEQUENCES, AND THE MIXED INFLUENCE OF FORCE, OF REASON, AND OF CORRUPTION BECAME EVERY DAY MORE POWERFUL AND MORE EXTENSIVE. Each independent chieftain hastened to obtain a separate treaty, from the apprehension that an obstinate delay might expose him, alone and unprotected, to the revenge or justice of the conqueror. The general, or rather the final capitulation of the Goths, may be dated four years, one month, and twenty-five days, after the defeat and death of the Emperor Valens. The provinces of the Danube had been already relieved from the oppressive weight of the Grithungi, or Ostrogoths, by the voluntary retreat of Aletheus and Sappharax, whose restless spirit had prompted them to seek new scenes of rapine and glory. Their destructive course was pointed towards the west, but we must be satisfied with a very obscure and imperfect knowledge of their various adventures." the Ostrogoths impelled several of the German tribes on the provinces of Gaul, concluded and soon violated a treaty with the Emperor Gratian, advanced into the unknown countries of the north, and, after an interval of more than four years, returned, with accumulated force, to the banks of the lower Danube. Their troops were recruited with the fiercest warriors of Germany and Scythia, and the soldiers, or at least the historians of the empire, "'no longer recognized the name and countenance of their former enemies. "'The general, who commanded the military and naval powers of the Thracian frontier, "'soon perceived that his superiority would be disadvantageous to the public service, "'and that the barbarians, awed by the presence of his fleet and legions, "'would probably defer the passage of the river till the approaching winter.' The dexterity of the spies, whom he sent into the Gothic camp, allured the barbarians into a fatal snare. They were persuaded that, by a bold attempt, they might surprise, in the silence and darkness of the night, the sleeping army of the Romans. And the whole multitude was hastily embarked in a fleet of three thousand canoes. The bravest of the Ostrogoths led the van, The main body consisted of the remainder of their subjects and soldiers, and the women and children securely followed in the rear. One of the knights without a moon had been selected for the execution of their design, and they had almost reached the southern bank of the Danube, in the firm confidence that they should find an easy landing and an unguarded camp. But the progress of the barbarians was suddenly stopped by an unexpected obstacle. A triple line of vessels, strongly connected with each other, and which formed an impenetrable chain of two miles and a half along the river. While they struggled to enforce their way in the unequal conflict, their right flank was overwhelmed by the irresistible attack of a fleet of galleys, which were urged down the stream by the united impulse of oars and of the tide. The weight and velocity of those ships of war broke and sunk, and dispersed the rude and feeble canoes of the barbarians. Their valour was ineffectual, and Alatheus, the king or general of the Ostrogoths, perished with his bravest troops, either by the sword of the Romans, or in the ways of the Danube. The last division of this unfortunate fleet might regain the opposite shore, but the distress and disorder of the multitude rendered them alike incapable, either of action or counsel, and they soon implored the clemency of the victorious enemy. On this occasion, as well as on many others, it is difficult to reconcile the passions and prejudices of the writers of the age of Theodosius. The partial and malignant historian, who misrepresents every action of his reign, affirms that the emperor did not appear in the field of battle till the barbarians had been vanquished by the valour and conduct of his lieutenant Promotus. The flattering poet, who celebrated in the court of Honorius the glory of the father and of the son, ascribes the victory to the personal prowess of Theodosius, and almost insinuates that the king of the Ostrogoths was slain by the hand of the emperor. The truth of history might perhaps be found in a just medium, between these extreme and contradictory assertions the original treaty which fixed the settlement of the goths ascertained their privileges and stipulated their obligations would illustrate the history of theodosius and his successors the series of their history has imperfectly preserved the spirit and substance of this single agreement the ravages of war and tyranny had provided many large tracts of fertile, but uncultivated land for the use of those barbarians, who might not disdain the practice of agriculture. A numerous colony of the Viscoths was settled in Thrace. The remains of the Ostrogoths were planted in Phrygia and Lydia. Their immediate wants were supplied by a distribution of corn and cattle and their future industry was encouraged by an exemption from tribute during a certain term of years. The barbarians would have deserved to fill the cruel and perfidious policy of the imperial court, if they had suffered themselves to be dispersed through the provinces. They required, and they obtained, the sole possession of the villages and districts assigned for their residence. They still cherished and propagated their native manners and language asserted in the bosom of despotism the freedom of their domestic government, and acknowledged the sovereignty of the emperor, without submitting to the inferior jurisdiction of the laws and magistrates of Rome. The hereditary chiefs of the tribes and families were still permitted to command their followers in peace and war, but the royal dignity was abolished, and the generals of the Goths were appointed and removed at the pleasure of the emperor. An army of 40,000 Goths was maintained for the perpetual service of the Emperor of the East, and those haughty troops, who assumed the title of Federati, or allies, were distinguished by their gold collars, liberal pay, and licentious privileges. Their native courage was improved by the use of arms and the knowledge of discipline, and, while the Republic was guarded, or threatened, by the doubtful sword of the barbarians— the last sparks of the military flame were finally extinguished in the minds of the Romans. Theodosius had the address to persuade his allies that the conditions of peace which had been extorted from him by prudence and necessity were the voluntary expressions of his sincere friendship for the Gothic nation. A different mode of vindication or apology was opposed to the complaints of the people who loudly censured these shameful and dangerous concessions. The calamities of the war were painted in the most lively colours, and the first symptoms of the return of order, of plenty and security, were diligently exaggerated. The advocates of Theodosius could affirm, with some appearance of truth and reason, that it was impossible to extirpate so many warlike tribes were rendered desperate by the loss of their native country, and that the exhausted provinces should be revived by a fresh supply of soldiers and husbandmen. The barbarians still wore an angry and hostile aspect, but the experience of past times might encourage the hope that they would acquire the habits of industry and obedience, that their manners would be polished by time, education, and the influence of Christianity, and that their posterity would insensibly blend with the great body of the Roman people. Notwithstanding these specious arguments, and these sanguine expectations, it was apparent to every discerning eye, that the Goths would long remain the enemies, and might soon become the conquerors of the Roman Empire. Their rude and insolent behaviour expressed their contempt of the citizens and provincials, whom they insulted with impunity, To the zeal and valour of the barbarians, Theodosius was indebted for the success of his arms. But their assistance was precarious, and they were sometimes seduced, by a treacherous and inconsistent disposition, to abandon his standard, at the moment when their service was the most essential. During the civil wars against Maximus, a great number of Gothic deserters retired into the moroseness of Macedonia, "'wasted the adjacent provinces, "'and obliged the intrepid monarch to express his person "'and exert his power to suppress the rising flame of rebellion. "'The public apprehensions were fortified by the strong suspicion "'that these tumults were not the effect of accidental passion, "'but the result of deep and premeditated design. "'It was generally believed that the Goths had signed the Treaty of Peace "'with a hostile and insidious spirit.' And that their chiefs had previously bound themselves, by a solemn and secret oath, never to keep faith with the Romans, to maintain the fairest show of loyalty and friendship, and to watch the favorable moment of rapine, of conquest, and of revenge. But as the minds of the barbarians were not insensible to the power of gratitude, several of the Gothic leaders sincerely devoted themselves to the service of the empire or at least, of the emperor. The whole nation was insensibly divided into two opposite factions, and much sophistry was employed, in conversation and dispute, to compare the obligations of their first and second engagements. The Goths who considered themselves as the friends of peace, of justice, and of Rome, were directed by the authority of Revitta, a valiant and honourable youth, "'distinguished above the rest of his countrymen "'by the politeness of his manners, "'the liberality of his sentiments, "'and the mild virtues of social life. "'But the more numerous faction adhered "'to the fierce and faithless Priulf, "'who inflamed the passions "'and asserted the independence of his warlike followers. "'On one of the solemn festivals, "'when the chiefs of both parties were invited to the imperial table, "'they were insensibly heated by wine.' till they forgot the usual restraints of discretion and respect, and betrayed, in the presence of Theodosius, the fatal secret of their domestic disputes. The Emperor, who had been the reluctant witness of this extraordinary controversy, dismembered his fears and resentment, and soon dismissed the tumultuous assembly. Previta, alarmed and exasperated by the insolence of his rival, whose departure from the palace might have been the signal of a civil war, boldly followed him, and, drawing a sword, laid Priolf dead at his feet. Their companions flew to arms, and the faithful champion of Rome would have been oppressed by superior numbers, if he had not been protected by the seasonable interposition of the imperial guards. Such were the scenes of barbaric rage, which disgraced the palace and table of the Roman emperor. And, as the impatient Goths could only be restrained by the firm and temperate character of Theodosius, the public safety seemed to depend on the life and abilities of a single man End of chapter twenty six Part five End of the decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two, by Edward Gibbon.